Hey, how's it going, folks? It's Abdullah. And Bean. And what you're about to hear is part of our month-long celebration of pride here on Great Moments in Weed History. We had an episode with Jessamine Stanley. We did a re-release of our episode about Dennis Perone. And what you're about to hear is our episode on another San Francisco cannabis activism icon, Brownie Mary. Isn't that right, Bean? Yeah, the word legend gets thrown around with pretty good reason on this show quite often, but uh, Brownie Mary is an icon of cannabis, of kindness, of the gay community, and of this intersection between activism, brownies, and cannabis that really changed everything in California and around the world. Yeah, absolutely. And this is another crucial story for anyone trying to understand the history of cannabis legalization in the United States and just a really cool and inspiring figure. I mean, this is a grandma who was going around giving people pot brownies for the various ailments that they were suffering for. And she became a really important person in the scene during the AIDS epidemic of the 80s and 90s. We, I think, got more emails and Instagram messages about this Brownie Mary episode than anything that we've done. I think it's a story a lot of people didn't know anything about going into, and by the time they were done, they had a new icon in their life. We actually had somebody send us a picture who went as Brownie Mary for Halloween and actually gave out magical brownies to adults. Uh, with their uh, consent and understanding. And that really touched us and, and really made us uh, remind us of the importance to not just celebrate uh, the famous people who happen to love weed and have a great weed story, but the people from our own community who became icons through this kind of defiant activism work that we love to celebrate. And all of our Pride Month episodes are brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, Tweedle Farms. Bean and I both use Tweedle Farms high CBD and other cannabinoid products every day. And we really stand with them in supporting LGBTQ plus members of our cannabis community. So thank you so much to Tweedle Farms. And you can go to TweedleFarms.com and use promo code GREATMOMENTS, all one word, no spaces, to get 20% off of your order. And they ship to all 50 states. So go ahead and check them out. Without further ado, let's get into our episode about Brownie Mary. Yo, how's it going, folks? It's Abdullah. And Bean. And welcome back for another edition of Great Moments in Weed History. On this show, my colleague Bean and I, who are both cannabis journalists and media makers, will go through some of the more interesting points in the very, very long history of cannabis. Isn't that right, Bean? Uh, that is why we're here. Yes, indeed. And uh, just so you know, I have zero prior knowledge of anything that I'm about to hear. Bean has done the research and written the story, and he's about to tell it to me. And we're going to have a chat, smoke some weed, drink some tea, and talk about it, learn a few things. So uh, come join us. Let's let's get into it. Bean, what do you got? Oh, it's uh, uh, today's story is all about compassion and conviction. And I think those are the two fundamental principles of the cannabis movement that have made it so successful. 
Um, and the the woman at the heart of this story really embodies that. So um, I think you got to start twisting one up for the yes, two of sir. us. Yes, sir. I got a nug right here. We're going to smoke some sour D right now. As, as always, if you're not quite prepared, now's the time to hit pause, pack one, roll one, you know, however you're ready to play along at home. And in the meantime, I think the two of us here are ready for another Great moment in weed history. Fantastic. All right. So I'm just uh, grinding up some of this gas right here. Uh, Bean, why don't you get us started? What do we got for today? All right. The hero of today's great moment in weed history was born on December 22nd, 1921 in Minnesota to a conservative Irish Catholic couple who named her Mary Jane Rathbun. Hmm. Mary Jane Rathbun. So I think I may know a little bit about this person because that name is very familiar uh, if you look at the history of cannabis activism here in the United States and instrumental figures who not only took action in favor of cannabis liberalization, but also just represented it. Uh, I think that this lady, whose name is perhaps Brownie Mary, is one of those folks. Ding, is that ding, right? ding, ding, ding. No yes. kidding. All right, Brownie Mary. Now, I mean, I know a few things about Brownie Mary, but... Uh, not the entire story for sure. Uh, you know, I know that she provided cannabis brownies to people who needed them at a certain time. But uh, yeah, what's the story behind uh, Brownie Mary Rathman? Yeah, I, I, well, that, I think that's the, really the fun of doing this is has been, you know, some of the incidents are seemingly kind of obscure or they're, or they're not so well known and we can learn about them. And then we have these heroes in our cannabis culture and... Um, telling those histories and telling those stories are important to inspire people. I find her story so inspirational. Mm -hmm. um, and to, you know, not have our history of, of rising up against this terrible injustice be erased and, and have people say like, oh, weed became legal because corporate CEOs saw they could make a lot of money. Well, no, that's not how... No, it's because of the compassion and the conviction that you were talking about before, Bean. And, you know, I think there's a lot of people who took great risks. You know, it's something that comes up a lot in great moments in weed history. A lot of times because the history of cannabis has been so fraught with uh, enemies, you know, with prohibition, that a lot of times the great moments involve people who have to stand up, who have to go above and beyond and risk themselves or risk something, uh, you know, in order to help people really in the end. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so she's she's named Mary Jane uh, Rathbun at birth, and the appropriate, pun, the pun most definitely was not intended because uh, this is what she said. Given my background and reputation, she uh, said towards the end of her life, my poor old mother is surely turning cartwheels in her grave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, totally. Look, you know, the interesting thing is she was born before. The real, uh, you know, propaganda campaign against cannabis, uh, but yet I'm sure that you know her family was as as misinformed as you know a lot of people were 
at the time about cannabis, right? Yeah, she, she, it was a very uh, sort of conservative, Midwestern, religious, Catholic upbringing. Um, and so as we're going to see, she, she uh, you know, she breaks free of, of sort of the constraints of that. But the compassion, uh, as we talked about, that's sort of at the heart of uh, Christianity as it should be. Maybe not as it always is, but right. definitely as it should be, those values really stick. Um, and and to me, she acts in a very Christian way of of wanting to help people and even being willing to risk her own well-being to do so. so. And so, uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, being as far as I understand, Brownie Mary was an activist like up in San Francisco, you know, which is a hotbed for cannabis and all types of other activism. Uh, you know, and yeah, so that's basically where she got her uh, her whole brownie persona going, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's and it's an interesting story how she how she ends up there. Um, Dope. Let's hear it. Okay, so so Mary Jane's cannabis activism may have mortified her parents, but to many others, she was both a healing angel and a fearless fighter for human rights. A self described anarchist. Um, which shout out, I'm, I'm an anarchist. And, yeah, and, I feel you definitely down with the tenets of anarchy. Uh, you know, fuck authority, question it all the time, you know, and institutions are, uh, the devil. Uh, okay. Yeah. So we solved that one. Yep. Okay. So she's a self-described anarchist. Um, and cannabis liberation was far from her first social justice cause. Um, now don't forget she's born in 1921. So, um, women's rights, I'm guessing, was an early cause. Yeah, um, but so, you know, when she's 13, uh, so this is still only in the 30s, um, she struck back at a Catholic school nun who caned her, which got her kicked out of both the school and her home. Wow. So already uh, the nail that sticks out, you know what I mean? Brownie Mary sticking it to the man who happened to be a nun at the time. Yeah, a female nun. A female nun. So she's sticking it to the man uh, in the broadest sense, but the man happens to be a female nun. Yeah, the quote-unquote man. Yeah, so, you know, that that uh, changes the trajectory of your life when you get kicked out of your school and your home because this nun is— And by the way, getting caned is no joke. Yeah, no, seriously. So it's, it's a whipping, essentially. It's a cane. I mean, it's a literal, you know, cane. That's you get caned with. Corporal punishment. I didn't mean to get, you know, too jargony with that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, no, and, and this is, I mean, this is at a time where uh, this goes on, you know? Like, people used to beat strangers' kids <laughs> just in public at this time, you know what I mean? Yeah, kid beating was uh, very much in style. Indeed. At the time. You know, as they say... Uh, you know, people would uh, spare the rod and spoil the child. Was yeah. Still taken very literally. That's from Matilda. <laughs> <laughs> um, so she's kicked out of school. She's kicked out of her home. So she started a 50-year waitressing career and used the money to rent her own apartment while she's still like a teenager. Wow. So basically, she strikes out on her own very young, becomes totally independent, uh, is cast away essentially just because of her, you know, general attitude of, you know, indignance. And now, I mean, 50 years is a really long time. So so in that 50 years, she was just waitressing. Yeah, that was her occupation her whole life from when she was, you know, 13 or 14. Um, 
until she retired from it, basically. All right, so so while she's waitressing, is she also engaging in activism? Oh, yeah, absolutely, the whole time. You know, um, she's if she wasn't radicalized when she hit a nun, she certainly gets radicalized when they kick her out of school and kick her out of her home. Mm-hmm. Um, and she becomes, you know, a self-sufficient person very early and, and is able to support herself uh waitressing for the rest of her life while she does all this activism and 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 social work really too right amazing and so she's also a woman working and supporting herself at a time when the role of women in america is understood to be essentially as a housewife right yeah or in very menial jobs you know and not necessarily ones that are supporting a person's entire life yeah absolutely and that's you know the thing waitressing is um was a, a means of support for a lot of people. You know, I remember we did the uh, Maya Angelou yeah. episode. Same thing. She, you know, before she became a celebrated author and a dancer and uh, uh, all these other things that we know her for, she supported herself that way. So, you know, tip well. Yeah, seriously. No, you, you absolutely should. You know what I mean? Especially when you're, uh, when your waiter or waitress is really on, just on it. You know what I mean? Just on the spot. Let them know. You might be tipping, like, you know, the next great activist or the next great (laughs) poet. Seriously. Absolutely. So, while still in her teens and early 20s, Mary advocated for union rights for minors in Wisconsin and traveled to Minnesota to march in the streets and at the Statehouse for women's reproductive rights. Oh, wow. Incredible. Definitely, I'm sure, a tense topic at this time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you talk about first wave feminism, um, this is still the the 30s or this maybe is, the early 40s. This is pre-Roe v. Wade, right? Oh, yeah, by a long shot. Um, so then in the early days of World War II, she and three of her female friends pulled up stakes and moved to San Francisco, where she met a soldier at a USO dance and later married him. They had a child, but the marriage ended in divorce leaving Mary to raise her daughter alone on an IHOP waitress's salary. Oh, man. Intense. So she basically finds herself in a new place where, you know, she's surrounded by like-minded people, probably more like-minded people than where she came from, and, you know, follows through the steps of life. You know, she meets a guy. She has a kid. But, you know, what was at the time the storybook ending for this was not in the cards for Brownie Mary. Yeah, you know, she she's this is kind of her um her attempt at a somewhat conventional life, you know, despite her radical positions, you know, her and her friends as they described it, they went out like looking for military men to to meet and fall in love with and marry. Um so, you know, she's she's in some ways radical, in other ways, you know, she wants to find a husband and she's you know, uh, supportive of the war effort and has a kid. And, and and then, you know, this divorce, now she's got to kind of make ends meet on her own. Right. Shit. And she's in San Francisco now, single mom. Yes. Um, and so then um, when her daughter later died in an automobile accident uh, at just 22 years old, <sighs> Mary was left alone and bereft without any surviving family to call her own and often struggling to pay the bills. Wow, that is incredibly sad, man. Jesus. 
What a time of struggle for the lady. Yeah, you know, obviously she's 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 like estranged from her whole family, um, from such a young age, and she, and she, you know, her husband, and she's are, lost her own family essentially. Yeah, yeah. and um, so, uh, you know, these are the tough times. Um, uh, so she's she's and she's struggling to pay the bills until one fateful day in the late 1970s, when after some trial and error. She at last developed the recipe for her, quote, magically delicious weed-infused brownies uh, that would make her first locally famous in the Castro, uh, San Francisco's famous predominantly gay neighborhood, and then an international cannabis cause celebrity. No kidding. So is she using cannabis at this time? Like, when did she discover cannabis along the way? Like, in San Francisco somewhere? Or is this, like... I mean, has she been doing it, or is this kind of like a new thing for her? She's trying out making edibles. No, she's uh, she gets high on her own supply. Okay, nice. She likes weed. So Brownie Mary has been blazing, as far as we know, for quite some time now. Yeah, she's been blazing. She's been working as a waitress. Um, and she uh, decides to make these brownies, and they, she, she dials in the recipe, and she starts to think, hey— People really like these brownies. Maybe I can uh, get a little side. Like, side hustles are older than the term side hustle. Yeah, right. Seriously, <laughs> man. And I mean, like, you know, she's doing it on the sly. She's she's getting into, you know, dealing an illegal substance, essentially, at this point. You know what I mean? But she's doing it in a place that's got a lot of demand for that sort of thing. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Um, so from, from the beginning of her brownie hustle, Mary's clientele reflected her surroundings. In the 1970s, the Castro was emerging as one of America's first gay neighborhoods, uh, as well as a center of LGBTQ culture and activism. Right. Um, Hate Ashbury. Right next to Hate Ashbury. Harvey Milk. Yeah, Mm -hmm. this same uh, era. Um, uh, but the Castro's... Uh, so that's what we think of immediately, uh, this time period, Harvey Milk, and then the sort of the 70s when it became um, just outwardly known as 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 that. But, uh, yeah. but the Castro's gay roots actually go all the way back to World War II, when, when San Francisco served as a key deployment center for soldiers headed to the Pacific Theater. During the war and in, and in its immediate aftermath, the U.S. military dishonorably discharged thousands of gay service members, many of whom chose to remain in San Francisco and make a new life for themselves. Oh, no kidding. So basically, uh, a bunch of former military, U.S. military, who were gay decided to sort of build a new community in San Francisco. Yeah. Well, well, you know, they'd either get kicked out of the military for being gay and— they just discharged you in San Francisco. If they're discharging you, they're not like, oh, well, now we're going to fly you back to where you were, or uh, fly or transport you home. Right. They were like, you're kicked out. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, if you grew up in a place where, you know, your your lifestyle and your orientation was not accepted right. and your family probably didn't accept you, um, and and you talked about like this history of activism and even radicalism in San Francisco. Mm. Uh, this community is a big part of that, right? So essentially, these guys are ostracized from the military for being gay, uh, and they find themselves 
out on their ass in San Francisco. So they all sort of build this brand new community. I did not realize that that's where the Castro came from. Yeah, that's definitely the root of it. Um, and so as, as you know, that, and that was also the era when Brownie Mary um, showed up too. She, she, she moved there during World War II. So she was there for this whole emergence of, of, of gay culture in the city, you know, sort of the same way you and I have um, in our years as reporters and, and making media seen cannabis culture come up and flourish and, and come out of its own closet in a way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, so, you know, this is a person who has been cast out of her home, cast out of her community, you know, uprooted and moved across the country, supports herself. And lo and behold, she finds a whole bunch of people, a whole community of people who are cast out, who are oppressed, you know, who are essentially banished from where they come from. Also, with the same spirit, building this new community. So she's in a perfect spot to enter the next phase of her brownie career. Yes, indeed. So cannabis use was also growing rapidly at the time, nationwide and especially in San Francisco. Uh, the Castro, as you said, sits right next to Haight-Ashbury, the center of hippie culture in the late 1960s and a major center of cannabis innovation and activism. Mm. Um, so, you know, there, 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 there's bordering neighborhoods, really. Um, and right. walking through both neighborhoods back then, a permanent fog of weed smoke hung in the air. Right. So, I mean, this is a time of, you know, the Sunshine family and, you know, the Grateful Dead and, and uh, gay activism and people getting wild and, you know, smoking loud. You know what I mean? Like, weed was sort of like the constant uh, smell track to, to, to this <laughs> entire movement. You know what I mean? That's what a colorful and interesting time. I think definitely, you know, if you look at American history, it's one of the most interesting times and places, uh, you know, in, in, in the whole story, really. You know what I mean? It's like really a place that I think embodies the sort of individualism and, uh, you know, a lack of complacency, I guess, you know, to for, for lack of a better description. That, you know, real, like, that's that's like the American spirit. You know what I mean? It's kind of like a revolutionary one. Yeah, and I think it it's, it's, gets into this idea of how does social change really happen. And sometimes it's just by doing the thing you want to do. Sometimes it's by civil disobedience. And, um, it, you know, I was getting to this point before, but, you know, you and I have both worked in, in, in the cannabis movement as well as, you know, people talk about the industry a lot. Um, but before there was ever an industry and the whole reason that there's an industry is because of this social movement, um, some of which was about civil disobedience. And, and if people had never broken the law uh, against cannabis... Uh, it never would have changed. If nobody grew cannabis, if nobody sold cannabis, if nobody consumed cannabis, um, that was the engine by which all this social change happened. Yeah, and you know what? It's so true. I think that people very quickly forget those struggles. You know, already we see people reveling in legal cannabis and, you know, not only from the consumer side, but also from the business side. But it's important to remember, like you're saying, that... This was not, uh, these were not easy won liberties that everyone is enjoying now. And I think that's the thing that we always forget in America is that, you know, like uh, 
People had to stand up at some point so that we could enjoy certain freedoms. And that's very true of the cannabis freedoms that you and I are lucky to have, you know, now. Yeah. And and on the other side, a lot of people want to pretend that, um, oh, you know, these laws, they, they just happened. Yeah. You know? Oh, it just happened. No, people did this. Institutions did this. People like, think that about prohibition. They think... Oh, drugs of all these drugs have just been illegal forever. And it's like, no, at a certain point, there wasn't this definition of what's drugs and what's medicine. It's like, this is all very new. You know, people aren't so aware of like, um, yeah, a lot of people don't think about it. I think a lot of people in America are pacified by the things in front of them, you know. But hopefully cannabis is one of the things that at least sparks some curiosity about how did we get here, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, everybody in the Castro smoking weed, everybody in uh, Haight-Ashbury smoking weed. So uh, it was definitely a seller's market for homemade edibles. Um, you know, kids listening, uh, young people listening to this, uh, there were no dispensaries. Yeah. <laughs> there was no stores. Uh, you know, it was... Uh, there was an old lady with a... <laughs> Amazing brownie recipe. <laughs> and, uh, you know, she wasn't an entrepreneur. She was a brownie slanger. Yeah. You know. Um, <laughs> so there's this seller's market. Um, plus, by all accounts, Mary's brownies were really tasty treats that got you lit. No shit. I mean, look, quality is really, uh, you know, at the heart of any successful business, you know. If you're making killer brownies, uh, they're going to stand out. I'm sure she wasn't the only person making weed brownies for sale in San Francisco at the time. You know what I mean? There's comp It's a competitive market, like you're saying. I mean, maybe a seller's market, but I'm sure lots of competition, right? Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, the other thing is when you go back to that uh, black market underground era of edibles, half the time, oh, okay, 45% of the time you'd get uh, a brownie or a goo ball or what have you, and it did nothing. 45% mm. of the time, you'd get one, and it would get you way, way, way too high. Right. And then, like, 10% of the time, you'd get one, and it would be... Just right. ...what you expected Yeah, it's a Goldilocks scenario. Yeah, yeah. So she was in that Goldilocks range if she really knew what she was doing. She figured out how to make brownies, how to dose them properly. She didn't have lab testing you know, like people right. have now. You just got to do it with, uh, you know, the eye of a chef, the eye of a master baker. And she does it. She masters it and it pops off. Hey, whether she master bakes or not is irrelevant <laughs> to this story and yeah. kind of creepy that you're... She, oh, oh, bake, master bake. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, okay, so, so she's out there. So Brownie Mary's product is the absolute tits and it pops off in San Francisco. Yes, and and rest assured, you know, we went over this a little bit, but she most definitely got high on her own supply, mm -hmm. typically by eating half of one of her brownies in the morning and then finishing the rest in the afternoon. Okay, so, so she's like, she's got like a nice, uh, you know, double microdose going of edibles all day. Yeah, she's just hitting a plateau and then just maintaining the plateau, which is, is sound advice for, for edibles. Yeah. And you know, if you're if you're uh, one of the more cannabis naive people, maybe getting into the show, you're not 
be careful with the edibles. Yeah. Everybody, every head knows that you don't mess around with edibles, but... Start low, go slow, as they say. Yeah. Sometimes the newbies think, oh, well, a cookie is not going to, you yeah. know, be as scary as smoking a joint. Well... It'll mm, get you. It'll definitely get you. Um, so anyhow, back to Brownie Mary. Yeah. So... Um, so she's eating these brownies uh, because otherwise she couldn't get around too well on her artificial knees, which she had earned through a lifetime of standing on hard floors as a waitress. Waitressing. Yeah, of course. I, you know, I, I was thinking that before when you said, oh, yeah, of course, she's smoking cannabis, you know, throughout her career as a waitress, because being on your feet all day is really hard work. And it like, you know, you develop arthritis uh, in your hands as well. You know what I mean? Look, it's a really active job. So... That cannabis is, you know, maybe helping her relax, but it's also being incredibly therapeutic, anti-inflammatory, you know, to her joints. Um, but yeah, shit. I mean, she wore herself out, huh? Yeah, and this this gave her a, a perspective on on cannabis as a medicine as well. Yeah, absolutely. So she's she's getting it. She's giving it. She's doing good. <laughs> yep. So uh, <clears throat> soon, business was booming. With Mary baking several dozen brownies every day to keep up with demand. Okay, that's that's quite a lot of brownie peddling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. An old-timey uh, artisanal yeah, uh, old-world right? brownie peddler. And uh, do you know how much one of her brownies was? I, I do not. I'm sure it was... Uh, like five bucks, I would guess, for the time, maybe. Is that a lot for the time? That was probably a lot for the time. It's like the cost of a nickel bag. Does Google have a translator where you put in what the year was and how much the pop brownie should cost? Yeah, no. It tells you? These are the types of things that, you know, the types of, like, micro-cultural details about cannabis culture, the culture in the closet, culture in the shadows, that we'll never know about. You know, once all the people from that era die... Uh, you know, a lot of this knowledge will be gone. How much was one of Brownie Mary's brownies? Well, there's probably only a handful of people in the world who can tell you, you know? Yeah. Well, um, right in, right into the yeah, show. It's... Did you get, did you get a, uh, we have an email address? Yeah, it's a G-M-I-W-H podcast at Gmail. And if you bought one of Brownie Mary's, uh, brownies, or if you know someone who did, uh, drop us a line. Let us know. We'd be curious. To I'd find be out. very curious to know. Um, All right. So, anyhow, so she's she's uh, hustling brownies, a few dozen brownies a day. Mm -hmm. um, a grandmotherly figure with curly gray hair, a kind-hearted disposition, and a sailor's vocabulary. She quickly became a beloved figure in the Castro, one who visited with many people daily while making her delivery rounds. Uh, and engaging them all in conversation. All right. So she she's becoming sort of a maternal figure in this neighborhood. Yeah, and she's like the weed mayor, too. Yeah. You know, <laughs> she, she, she talks with, you know, she's somebody, she's found her new family um, mm -hmm. uh, through selling weed brownies. Yeah, that's amazing. And what kind of loud were they smoking back then? I mean, what would this weed look like? What we're we're what we're probably into so we're into the early seventies. I'd say you're mostly, um, you're you're at the dawn of the homegrown U.S. Uh, cannabis. Mm -hmm. You know, people have been started smoking weed in you know obviously all the way back to the early nineteen hundreds, um, mm -hmm. but. Growing weed from those seeds that you were getting weed from Mexico and uh, 
and point south, they wouldn't grow well in Northern California. They wouldn't even mm. grow well in Southern California. People's homegrown weed was like looked at as kind of trash, like mm. dirt weed, ditch weed, right. almost. Um, and then right around this same time, people started bringing indica seeds back uh, oh. from uh, sort of that hippie trail through- Nepal, India, Pakistan, right? Yeah, sure. absolutely. Those seeds were acclimated to much uh, colder, more elevated climates. So that's when people started growing uh, weed in California that was actually really good. Right, gotcha. And I mean, you know, generations later, you've got the sort of famed Northern Cali uh, cannabis. I mean, it's a climate that if you have the right strain, uh, will grow pretty ideally up there. Yeah, and they developed all these hybrids uh, yeah. to do it, and and that's that's it. that was its own social movement, and that was its own civil disobedience. As much as people right. made money off of growing weed, mm. a lot of the people who did it were true believers. Right. right, and so Brownie Mary is making her cannabis brownies using. Uh, cannabis that's essentially the great, 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 great granddaddies of <laughs> grandmoms, actually, of the cannabis that we smoke from Northern Cali today. Yeah. And and what's what's kind of cool is is so she started out, um, you know, making brownies for profit mm -hmm. um, as she moves into doing it to help people all of these growers start to come forward. They hear about what she's doing and they just start anonymously gifting her weed to make her brownies. Amazing. Um, and was there like, a, you know, a, like a chocolate factory uptown that was like, <laughs> you know what, we're going to give you some boxes of chocolate and brownie <laughs> Mary. You mean, no, you're doing good out here. Not just the weed, but that's that's good. Like, yeah, well, you know, it's like uh, as always the uh, you know the uh, the stone that the builder refused. You know, these growers who are uh, criminals and pushed out and marginalized—they're mm -hmm. the ones who step up and help her. Yeah, you know, they're and they're happy to do it. They sought her out. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when they heard about it. Yeah, no, that's that's really cool. Um, and she's—I love that she's got this sort of. Uh, she's like this sweet old lady, but with a she foul mouth. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> she mostly hung out with sailors a bunch, you know. Yeah, plus being like a waitress at an IHOP in those days, you gotta yeah. have a thick skin and you gotta swear a lot. Yeah, and you gotta come back at people or 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 take their shit all day. I'm sure. Yeah. Um. So, she becomes this sort of beloved figure, mm. uh, locally famous, which is. Probably the best kind of famous, right? Yeah, right? <laughs> Becoming like a a local hero, especially in this way. I mean, you know what I mean? Liz, like, she's uh, she's an altruistic hero, but she's also a drug dealer. Yeah. <laughs> um, so even before the AIDS crisis hit, uh, San Francisco's first case was identified in 1980, she already served as a kind of mother figure to countless young people in the Castro who'd left their families behind in pursuit of a community that accepted them and celebrated their lifestyle. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so just like her, basically. I mean, you know, people she identified with, she became an icon for them. Yeah. And, a pirate and, queen. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, yeah, like you said, a maternal presence, yeah. which, you know, is, a, is an important thing in this world. Yeah, absolutely. Um. As the AIDS crisis grew deadly and widespread, however, um, Mary noticed two things quickly. Uh, one, 
The then little understood disease vastly disproportionately affected the young gay men uh, she'd taken to thinking of as her children. And two, cannabis proved incredibly effective in combating their symptoms and restoring their appetites. Right. Wow, that's wild, man. Like, what a crazy time. I mean, now you see movies about, you know, whatever, that era. But I think it's really hard to understand the magnitude of, like, this new disease, you know, that's suddenly, like, spreading so quickly and killing people and, you know, sort of occurring at a time when, you know, it's like, look, these are people who are building a community after lives of strife, you know? And then this really horrific epidemic shows up that was clearly devised by the CIA. <laughs> I'm, on, I'm nodding silently. No comment. <laughs> All right, CIA, not friends of the show, but we no. don't want any shit from you. Yeah, you know? not, uh, friends, not friends of the podcast. <laughs> Rasta don't work for no CIA. Yeah. Neither do we. <laughs> but anyhow, so yeah. what happens? So, and, and also I'm guessing, you know, because cannabis is a palliative medicine for AIDS patients, I mean... You know, she suddenly has a new purpose. Yeah, and she's she's one of the, you know, she's in the Venn diagram of uh, gay culture and weed. She's right at that intersection. Right. So she's among the first people. And, and she deals with so many, deals literally um, with so many people every day and hearing their stories. Um, she's among the first people realizing the scope of what's happening. Um, and she's also, all the people she deals with on like weed, and so they're giving her this message, mm -hmm. hey, this is really helping me or my friend or my lover, and she's cross-pollinating that message to all the other people she's dealing with. Um, mm. And there becomes this growing awareness um, Wow. So, yeah, she's really, like, bringing different worlds together. Huh. Yeah. Um, and so then she begins uh, volunteering as a nurse's assistant. And while making the rounds in local AIDS and cancer wards, she makes her brownies available to patients for free. Oh, wow. So, I mean, really, you know, the whole model has switched for her, essentially. I mean, it goes from being, like, a side hustle you know what I mean? Like making a little bit of money. She gets popular because she's good at it. And then suddenly something insanely grave happens and she's needed. And she comes through by making weed brownies and giving them out for free. Yeah. And, and also now she's starting to deal with people who aren't already cannabis users or cannabis aware people there she's going right to the hospital beds of people and um the nurses and everyone they know what she's doing and mm. they see the effects right and so they're encouraging right and you know it's so striking to think that providing people sick people with medicine can be considered a form of activism i think it really points to how ridiculous the prohibition is right that literally like you know this is a protest. Like just helping somebody in need is like has to be considered protest because it's prohibited. Yeah, beyond protest, civil disobedience. You know, she's she's breaking the law, um, you know, honorably and and with good intention, but uh, definitely doing that. So mm. 
um, at first, uh, she dipped into her $612 a month Social Security checks to cover the cost of supplying everybody. Mm. Um, but as word spread of Brownie Mary's, this is where she comes to be known as Brownie Mary. Uh, gotcha. Uh, so she's spending her all her rent on weed, or she's spending all her welfare checks on weed, which... Uh, I think is actually perfectly good way to spend well, your government security, money. But yeah, same yeah, thing. you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, well, especially if you're if you're using it to alleviate the the suffering of all these people. Um, but so as word spread of her kindness and compassion, she began to get regular donations from these weed growers. Um, so guess who gets involved next? The cops. <laughs> of course. <laughs> this, as you said, this aggression will not stand, man. They're not going to allow this woman to help the desperately ill, right? Yeah, man. Yeah, like, you know, a, a lot of times in these great moments in weed history, like, you know, there's a turn and suddenly the cops show up. It's a lot like life, you know? <laughs> yeah, suddenly there's a turn. Yeah. Um, so the police got involved uh for the first time in 1981, when the SFPD raided Mary's apartment in a public housing project for senior citizens. Wow. Oh, my God. Can you imagine being the cop in that raid and being like, seriously, you're raiding an old folks home to catch a lady who makes brownies for sick people? Nice going, San Francisco pigs of the 70s. You know, in a way... Their their cruelty is was their undoing. Um, you know, they they could have maintained the prohibition on cannabis without going so far as to um, make martyrs out of people. It really is that, and it's something that comes up again and again. I mean, we talked about Fela Cootie, you know, and 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 you really think about uh, how much more support. Uh, the movement gets because these people become martyrs. You know what I mean? And I think it's it's uh, it just goes to show that you know those monolithic, mindless governments will always sort of do the same predictable thing. You know, and it's always a violent and uh, you know unnecessary and oppressive thing. But they show their true colors. You know, and once again, an activist has brought the true ideology out of the authorities. Yeah, she's revealed them as, you know, they're, they're supposedly trying to stop you from smoking pot because they're so concerned about your health. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's a, people really don't consider the double standard of it. I mean, look, for example, the U.S. is in a opioid crisis, you know. The U.S. has been in an opioid crisis for decades, by the way. It's just like it just didn't hit places that paid a lot of taxes until the last few years, right? But, like, you know, people still somehow, uh, you know, can't differentiate it in their heads. They just assume that what's legal is totally okay. You know what I mean? Or totally fine for their health. And, I mean, look, how many different, you know, pharmaceutical crises do there have to be uh, before people start realizing that you can't trust what you're told is an effective medicine or not, you know? No, and you, 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 you know, you can't trust that the authorities have your well-being at heart, mm. um, or that that's, you know, that that any of this is really about weed, even. Seriously. Um, so, do you, do you know how they uh, 
uh, knew it was her apartment once they got to this senior living center. They smelled brownies. <laughs> well, no, I, she had a, 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 a thank you for pot smoking sticker on the outside of her door. <laughs> oh, no kidding, dude. What a cool lady. All right, so these pricks bust in. Uh, they seize, you know, several trays of brownies, presumably. How much do you think the yield... Uh, uh, the 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 raid yielded. How much do you think they confiscated? I have the figure. Ooh, interesting. Uh, in brownie form or in cannabis form? In in cannabis form. Um, you know what? She's getting donations at this time. I'm gonna guess uh, eight pounds. Ooh, I thought you were gonna eighteen pounds. I eighteen pounds. Yeah. Oh man. So, so that's close. no joke. <laughs> yeah. Have you uh, ever been in a room with eighteen pounds of weed? I, I have, and it's uh, it's very pleasant. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what I mean? It's definitely, you sense the magnitude. That's a lot of pot. That's a lot of pot. It's about to be a lot of brownies if they wouldn't fucking. Yeah, about to be a lot of evidence. <laughs> <laughs> um, so <clears throat> this this led to a court date for the then 57-year-old Edibles impresario. Uh, who was hailed as the Florence Nightingale of medical marijuana by her many admirers in the city and around the world. Wow, man. And, you know, like, uh, that, look, there's no judge that can sentence a lady like that and not look like a fucking ogre. You know what I mean? Again, we're talking about martyrdom, you know? Talk about a scene that really makes uh, makes the other side of it look like dicks, you know? Yeah, and and you know, her case is obviously this unique case because she becomes really a public figure in San Francisco. But many other people get ground under that wheel of injustice, and nobody or very few people notice. And it's just the daily operation of of this machine, really. Yeah, that crushes people. And now, finally. People get to see a notable figure in that community going through this, and it shines light on it, huh? Yeah, and especially, you know, the reasons that she was doing it um, are what made it so—because they're always happy to say, oh, this person's a drug dealer making money, and and you're you're— uh, both guilty for what you're doing and for your motivation, yeah. as if this whole country isn't about fucking money. Um, <laughs> but she's different because she's giving these brownies away, and she's giving them away to people who are so obviously ill. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why people are really re- rallying behind her. Yeah. Oh, wow. So so she's she's booked. She's booked. She's arrested. She, the case makes national headlines. Um, you know, so before the trial, there's all this coverage. The case made national headlines. Yeah, haters keep hating. You're making me famous, right, Brownie <laughs> Mary? <laughs> well, th- exactly. And and even beyond that, um, those headlines helped spread the message that cannabis is an effective medicine for AIDS and cancer patients farther and wider than it had ever spread before. Incredible. Wow. So, so, so people are actually learning... About, you know, like AIDS is obviously not just affecting San Francisco. It's everywhere at this point. And all of a sudden, they're inadvertently giving a platform to the, uh, you know, the the information about the medical benefits of cannabis for AIDS patients. That's insane. That's awesome. Yeah. Every every article that ran about it had to say why she was doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really spread that message in a way nothing else probably could have. Wow. 
Um, and so for the first time, uh, this presents a sympathetic case in the media that focused on medical use. Also, the whole idea of medical cannabis is uh, both old, obviously, um, but in the American consciousness, this is a new idea just mm. in general. Right. Man, that is pretty crazy to think about. Yeah, at this time, you know, like now we, uh, you know, we assume that, you know, oh, well, everyone's had knowledge about you know, medical cannabis, like, you know, cannabis for cancer patients. That's something that a lot of people are aware of now. But, you know, we're talking about a time where that's a foreign concept. Cannabis is just considered a recreational drug and nothing more really in the United States, at least. Yeah, for, for the vast, vast majority of people. Absolutely. And even the medical community, even the, even, the, oh, yeah. even the people who later come to be the pioneers of researching this, it's still a new idea. Right. Um. So she's she's convicted, and she's sentenced to 500 hours of community service, um, which is this is somebody who like spends her whole life volunteering. So she's not like yeah, <laughs> this is just another day. <laughs> yeah, she's not sweating this. So um, she volunteers for a hospice program. She works at a soup kitchen, and all the while she's making her rounds at Ward 86 of San Francisco General Hospital. Uh, where the doctors, nurses, and the staff all greet her with admiration and respect because uh, they see firsthand how her brownies uh, bring nausea relief, pain relief, and really like restore just uh, quality of life even to the patients who, who are ultimately dying. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, on a day-to-day -day basis. So it's like, you know, it's, it's palliative care basically. And I mean, like these are the people who are sort of you know, medical professionals who at this point, when there's such a little understanding of the disease, are probably desperate for any sort of, uh, you know, uh, medicine that's going to help. And it probably seems pretty harmless to try some brownies from a nice old lady, you know what I mean, who's coming through. But yeah, man, like, you know, those are the people who are going to see firsthand uh, how effective it can really be. And it's so clear when somebody goes from being too nauseous to eat or be comfortable to not being nauseous at all, you, you if you see it firsthand, it's a really hard thing to deny. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so she's uh, she's a god amongst the docs. Um, she's, you know, they're down with her clown to uh, steal a phrase from the uh, insane clown posse. <laughs> uh, uh, shout out ICP Nation. We will do a, a Juggalo-related episode at some point, I'm sure. Um, so despite the arrest, she never stopped baking and distributing her magically delicious brownies. Uh, about a year after her arrest, she was walking down Market Street on her way to make a delivery to a cancer patient when she happened upon one of the police officers involved in the original raid on her apartment. Oh, man. So it's one of those unscrupulous coppers who busted in on an old lady and smelled brownies in the hallway. <laughs> yeah, so he sees her. And so I'll give you two options. You think that he um, takes the opportunity to apologize and say how badly he feels about what happened. Or B, uh, he grabs her on the spot, searches her, finds brownies, and arrests her again. Okay, so uh, he's a cop, you said, right? And indeed he is. All right. I'm going to guess that he, uh, he, he he pulled the dick move. That's option B, that 
Brownie Mary goes back to jail, sadly. Yes, so she's 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 arrest she's arrested again, uh, and he takes her directly to city jail. Brutal. Um, but the district attorney, uh, facing an uproar from the community, eventually drops the charges. All right, yeah, man. Seriously, you know what kind of cop would do that? You know what I'm saying? Like that is so insane. I mean, look at this, like fucking, you know. Ugh, I don't know. It just yeah, you know, it makes you mad. Look. There's, there's, there's a basic, you know, there, there's like basic compassion. You know what I mean? Like you, you gotta see like, you gotta see an old lady and be like, that could be my mom. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I did not, uh, I don't have his name, but not a friend of the podcast. Not a friend. Enemy of the podcast. <laughs> Unless he did some serious soul searching yeah. and righted his wrongs and you know remediation. Yeah. Okay. So, but now, at this point, Brownie, Brownie Mary is pretty much untouchable in San Francisco, um, and she goes right back to distributing her brownies. In- oh, nice. So she's back at it. Like she, she can't be stopped. Essentially, I mean, you know, you arrest her once, you arrest her twice. The lady's gonna keep slinging those brownies. Yes, indeed, she does. Uh, in in 1986. San Francisco General Hospital named her Volunteer of the Year. Um, And at the same time, she started working uh, with her close friend and fellow cannabis activist Dennis Perone on a proposition to make the policy for San Francisco uh, to recommend that cannabis be made available for medicinal purposes. This Mm -hmm. is very cool. Dennis Perone, of course, a guy that you and I have smoked weed with. Indeed, that was a great moment in in my weed history. Yeah, in my weed history as well. That was uh, that was really dope. An OG of cannabis activism. Yeah, and we went to the Castro Castle. Remember his his spot? Yeah, that place is beautiful. It's amazing. It's like being inside like a big graffiti mural. Basically, you know, it's like really really dope. Yeah, and I think it's available to stay at as like a B and B. It it was for a long time. I think oh, that's it still really is. dope. Shout out Dennis Perone, friend of the show. Friend of the show, most definitely, and and like Mary, one Mary, and one of Mary uh, Brownie Mary's best friends. That's um, really cool. So less than a year later, she gets arrested for the third and final time. Uh, this time she's up in Sonoma County. She's at a grower's spot making brownies, like right on the farm. Um, wow. All right. So, you know, this is at least it's the last time she's getting <laughs> arrested. That's good to know. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, somebody like that shouldn't really have been arrested the first time. It's pretty insane. Uh, again, she's a brownie lady. Yeah. And so she's outside of San Francisco. So, so you know, her, you know, her reputation is not as protective. They, they, they probably didn't even know who she was. Right. Oh, okay. Gotcha. So, so they take her into custody and Dennis Perone uh, goes around and collects money for her bail and also rallies a bunch of people to be there when she's released. And he calls all the press and has like a press conference waiting for her when she gets released from custody. Oh, wow. And this, this is the great moment right here. All right, here we go. Is what she says at this press conference. Let's hear it. This is, you know, like one of the deals where there's like all the microphones in front of you and the phalanx of of the press. And she says, and this is a little old lady with a gray curly hair. 
If the narcs think I'm going to stop baking pot brownies for my kids with AIDS, they can go fuck themselves in Macy's window. Oh, snap. <laughs> Foul mouth Brownie Mary sticks it to the man in public. The press is there to document it. Yes, pearls were clutched. Epic. Uh, and I mean, and also, look, you know, you might hear some of those curse words now, and you're like, oh, it's old, some curse words. But this was back in the day, like, you know, like Ricky and Lucy were still sleeping <laughs> in separate beds. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, this was a different time. Uh, you know? That's 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 pretty wild to see, man. That's really cool. And I like how she doesn't give a fuck about, uh, you know, uh, putting a crack in her sweet old lady persona. Yeah, in a way, it's, it's like even more endearing. Yeah, absolutely. Know? It's authentic. Man. That was the other thing is she didn't create this image of like, oh, I'm this saintly person who, you yeah. know, she was a street fighter. Yeah, man. No, that's that is wild, dude. What a gangster. And 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 that just that image of when you say they can go fuck themselves, it's almost like a turn of phrase. But when yeah. you say that you could fuck yourself in Macy's window, they in front of everybody. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like <laughs> that's, it, it conjures an image. <clears throat> that's kind of amazing. Um, so and this is crazy. So this is up in Sonoma. Meanwhile, while she's awaiting trial on those charges. Um, the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, who've now completely come around, um, they declare August 25th, uh, that, well, they passed something, uh, a resolution making uh, weed, pro, uh, weed prosecution the lowest priority. Okay. And to celebrate it, they declare August 25th Brownie Mary Day in the city of San Francisco. Amazing. And do they still celebrate Brownie Mary Day to this day? Well, I don't, you know, I I haven't heard much about it, but what I was thinking is, uh, so uh, August 25th, 825, should be like the 420 of edibles. Wow, yo, that is a really great idea. So, I mean, this is an edibles legend, basically, you know what I mean? I mean, not just in the way that she made a lot of edibles and that, you know, that they were a big part of her story, but like you were saying, you know, she propagated knowledge about edible cannabis as a medicine. You know what I mean? I'm sure there's people who are like, oh, you can put weed in brownies. You know what I mean? And then there's people like, oh, you can use cannabis to treat AIDS or, you know, like any number of, and, you know, imagine if you can treat that illness with it, what else can you treat with it? You know, look, that's, uh, you know, that's an incredibly important uh, step to take at a time when prohibition was uh, at its height. You know what I mean? Essentially, like, look, this is, the midst of a, you know, a drug war era. So she, so so then she and Dennis Perone uh, joined forces, and they co-found the San Francisco Buyers Club, uh, which was uh, a nonprofit, volunteer-run, eleven thousand member medical cannabis collective. Uh, mm-hmm. That this is before any of the laws, but they operated openly. Uh, the city kind of gave them their winking approval. Mm-hmm. Um, and they distributed cannabis to people with AIDS and cancer and, and other serious illnesses. Um, and then she played a major role in helping to uh, pass Prop 215, the first statewide cannabis, uh, medical cannabis Right, law. 1997, right? Uh, 96. 97 when it was implemented, but 96 gotcha. when it passed. Um, and she, at the time, she was... Uh, uh, not not feeling very well. She thought she might be dying. Um, 
And she said, I, uh, she told the New York Times um, that uh, she really, I really, I think I might live to see this pass. I really hope that I do. Uh, and if I do, Governor Pete Wilson, a Republican who was against weed, uh, he's going to wet his pants. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, that's awesome. Brownie Mary taking every press opportunity uh, to tell, you know, the buttholes in city government to go fuck themselves. And then this is how it all really ties ties together in, in this. And so at the same time, all this political activism is going on. Um, her, her work directly with patients caught the eye of Dr. Donald Abrams, who is now the head of oncology at San Francisco General Hospital. At the time, he was a younger uh, doctor who worked uh, alongside her in the AIDS ward. Um, oh. And he was inspired by what she was doing. And he'd also lost a partner to AIDS. Oh, wow. He, he's a gay man as well. Um, and uh, so he saw her helping people and he said, I'm going to uh, do a study of medical cannabis for AIDS and do the first work to show that this is, you know, he didn't, he knew from his own eyes it was working. Yeah. But he said, I want to make the scientific case for this. Um, wow. And uh, in 1997, he published a study uh, that showed, quote, um, cannabis did not hurt the immune system of, you know, AIDS patients in, enrolled in the study. It did not increase viral load, um, did not negatively interact with the protease inhibitors. I don't actually know what a protease inhibitor is, but <laughs> um, but it, it definitely didn't negatively interact with them. <laughs> and uh, it actually did facilitate increased caloric intake as well as weight gain. Okay, cool. So it's like, you know, an AIDS patient is not going to waste away as quickly or severely if they're using cannabis. And I mean, that's the thing now you see in uh, cancer patients as well, you know what I mean? Or anyone who's terminally ill, you can increase your appetite and just kind of generally improve your quality of life, uh, you know, it's like w at the end of your life, basically. Or, or, and it can also help, you know, if, if you're trying to heal and you can't nourish your body and you're and you're to this point of exhaustion with nausea, that makes it very hard to heal. Yeah. Um, so this is a very underlying healing effect of cannabis. Mm -hmm. Um and 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 this this research was the the first research on cannabis's effects on people with HIV. Um, Dr. Abrams remains a leading researcher and advocate today. Um, but at the time, he was like one of the first medical doctors to really take this seriously. Mm. Um, and he really credits Brownie Mary with opening his eyes to it. Brownie Mary spurring the scientific discovery around medical cannabis for AIDS. Amazing. Yeah, and it really shows you that like this knowledge came up from the underground. It, it wasn't the doctors working around the clock to figure out what might work. Right. It was the people um, figuring it out and, and bringing it to his attention. Yeah. Um, and so uh, sort of the last wonderful act in a long and wonderful life. Um, Brownie Mary decided to share her love of cannabis cookery with the world via a, a book called uh, Brownie Mary's Marijuana Cookbook and Dennis Perone's Recipe for Social Change. That's oh. kind of a long title. 
Yeah. Just not to backseat edit your book. <laughs> Bit of a mouthful. Yeah, that sounds like two books. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think maybe it should have been two books. But regardless, you know, I, I didn't know they collabed on a book. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and it's, it's a cool book. It's like a mix of stories of their activism, recipes, exploits. Um, so it definitely should have been two books. Been two books. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and they, they published it together. The book contains their shared advice for using direct action to foment political change. And also, like most uh, political uprising books, uh, had a lot of recipes for weed-infused black bean soup, spaghetti sauce, and chestnut stuffing, all her uh, recipes. Oh. You know what there wasn't a recipe for? A brownie. Oh. And this is because she told the New York Times, and this is we'll, we'll give her the final word with this. Uh, when and if they legalize it, hey, we did it, right? Yeah, Mary, seriously. We did, fucking did it. Um, so when and if they legal, I'm going to change it. I'm going to just say, when they legalize it, I'll sell my brownie recipe to Betty Crocker or Duncan Hines and take the profits and buy an old Victorian for my kids with AIDS. Oh, wow, man. You know, like once a maternal caretaker, always a maternal caretaker, man. What a G. And, you know, and and like a, a tough lady, too. You know, you, you always think of a, a maternal figure as someone who's just nurturing or whatever. But it's also somebody who fights for you. You know, it's somebody who's out in the world uh, on your behalf and has your back when you're down, you know. And uh, she's that to the core. And that about wraps it up for this episode of Great Moments in Weed History. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and leave us a nice little review if you're so inclined. And follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and SoundCloud at at GMIWH Podcast. And please give us a tweet or a post if you like the show. And with that, we'll close it out. Thanks so much. We'll see you next week. That's the show, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you stuck around this long, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can put five on it at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. And that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every Weedness Day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Beanstock, a.k.a. Bean. Special thanks to our sponsor, PAX. Go to PAX.com and use promo code GREATMOMENTS, all one word, for a big discount at checkout.